Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. We're going to continue our conversation this morning on what I have termed the delight of discipline. I wonder if we can put the slide up for me, please. There you go. It sounds like an oxymoron. Does anybody know what an oxymoron is? Something that sounds the opposite to what it truly is. But, you know, the Bible teaches us that discipline is a good thing in the life of a believer. And in fact, without discipline, we will never really fully inherit all that God does for us. We have to be diligent and we have to be intentional in our relationship with God. I think I mentioned last week there are three categories of people in the kingdom of God. There's those who are accidental. In other words, they've just somehow encountered something that changed their lives. And how many of us are accidental? We were minding our own business and God came and did something in our lives. Give me a wave if that's you. That's you, okay. So God does things and it looks like it's accidental, but it's actually very intentional. God never does anything accidentally. Uh, I'm often heartened by the truth that God, in a very specific time, in a very specific way, came to me and showed and revealed to me an aspect of his nature and his character. Nothing about that was accidental. Everything about that was highly strategic. And you know, if he has the uh, plan for our lives, which is before the foundations of the earth, he knows exactly when to meet with you. And he knows exactly how to speak to you. And he knows exactly how to open up his heart and his character his nature to you nothing is accidental and then there's incidental uh, Christians that's those who are kind of just meandering through life a little bit like Juan when he was meandering up to the front they have no great sense of direction or vision or or a sense of impetus in the way they live they're just kind of doing the best they can with what they've been given and there's nothing wrong with that that's okay that's fine and some days that's the best we can offer God to be true but God prefers for us to be completely intentional about the way we live our lives because he is intentional about the way he lives in relationship to you. He wants you to be intentional about the way you live in relationship with him. And that means for us, intentionality turns up in our lives and looks like discipline. Have you noticed that if you don't pray, you don't feel close to God? So prayer, the discipline of prayer, is a good thing. Have you noticed that if you're not worshiping God, somehow your heart becomes dull? Could you turn this down a little bit, please? Have you noticed that, that sometimes if you don't continue to pursue God in worship, your heart becomes a little dull? Have you noticed it might even over time become hard? Calloused by life, because if you're not allowing God to influence you and God to impact you, there will be many other things in this world that will take that place and they will seek to distort the reality of who you are. Have you noticed that if you don't listen to the word of God or read the word of God, that you end up thinking you know better than God? Have you noticed that if, it, if it's not a discipline in your life, you will become some kind of you know, person who does what they think is just right in their own eyes? The Bible says each one has fallen into the trap of going their own way. And Jesus said the opposite to us. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. We need to read the word of God. More importantly, we need the word of God to read us. We need God to speak and to minister through his word. So we don't want to be accidental and we don't want to be incidental. We want to be intentional. And that looks a little like this. It looks like discipline. So what are these spiritual disciplines that we're exploring over these days? Well, I think, first of all, we need to define what the purpose of them are in our lives. 
I would suggest to you that no spiritual discipline, whatever it looks like for you, actually is a virtue. In other words, it doesn't carry any great power in and of itself. It will not get you into heaven. It will not keep you out of hell. It will not heal you whenever you're sick. The discipline in itself is simply a means or a mechanism by which God can use the opportunity that you give him to do something good in your life. If you practice spiritual disciplines, you won't be at the front of the queue in heaven. But you might here on earth experience God in a very powerful and indeed personal way. Whenever we think of disciplines, we need to think of them in this term. And let's go in our Bibles, please, if we can, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. The Apostle Paul here is telling us that grace invites us to this reality with God. It says, make every effort to support your faith with goodness. Does that sound like an incidental or accidental approach to life? And to goodness with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with endurance. And endurance with godliness. And godliness with mutual affection. And mutual affection with love. The Apostle Paul is trying to help us understand that when we work alongside the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we celebrate the delights of our hearts by offering God and posturing ourselves before God in all of these spiritual disciplines, the quickening of the Holy Spirit begins to come. God begins to do an exceptional work in us. Now, the one way in which God chooses to do that work is a word that we're very familiar with. That word is grace. In fact, Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians 2, verse 13. He says, it is God who is at work in you. Can somebody just say hallelujah to that? You're not on your own. You don't have to work this out by yourself. You don't have to figure it out by yourself. It is God who is at work in you. And here's what he does. He enables you to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me just camp on those two words for a moment. You see, God has a will. He wills things for you. He wills peace for you. Amen? He wills joy for you. He wills freedom for you. He wills healing for you. God has a will. He's very intentional about what he wants to do in your life. And here's what happens whenever we start to be intentional in response to him. By practicing some of these spiritual disciplines, we'll come to them in a minute, is his will for you looks like it's your will. He starts to make his will apparent to you. And more importantly, because we can see some of that in the scriptures anyway, you will start to want what he wants. Isn't that good news? Have you ever prayed a prayer and realized that it was God who backed you into that corner to pray it? It's like he took all the options away and suddenly you're praying for something you wouldn't ordinarily pray for. Do you know why God does that? Because he wants to show you. Because if you're saying yes to that reality, you're saying, yes, God, I'd like to see this. Yes, God, I'd like to experience this. He has already said in the heavenly realms, amen. 
And sometimes we end up praying prayers that are ordained by God. God has brought us to a place when we're praying for what he wants to happen in our lives. Isn't that exciting? That's his will becoming our will. You know, when I first became a Christian, I remember struggling a lot with the scriptures because I found that God seems to have an opinion on everything. Have you noticed that? And I also noticed this, that his word is not advice. It's actually direction. And when God speaks, if I allow his word to bring direction by the way I respond in obedience to it, his word does not return to him void, but accomplishes what he has set it out to do. Sometimes I look at myself and I think I want things that I never thought I would ever want. When I first became a Christian, I couldn't have cared less about unity. <laughs> and now I find myself thinking, wouldn't unity be amazing? I find myself praying for unity. I keep asking God to help me keep in step with the unity that he wants to bring around me. You see, his will, in many ways, has affected my will. And as if he's willing it, and I'm willing it, where two or more agree on something, come on, talk to me, it shall come to pass. But Paul goes on to say something more than just that. He says this. It is God who is at work in you, amen, enabling, empowering you both to will, to come into alignment with his will, and to work. In other words, his will really works. I'll just let that hang in the atmosphere. His will really works. But also this invites us into a partnership. It invites us into a conversation. It invites us into a state of communion where we start to think and act and respond to God in his grace. You know, they say that grace in many, many ways for all of us in the Western church has become a very familiar concept. And I remember back post 1994, 95, before the Toronto blessing hit the world. And I remembered that in many, many ways, what we learn through that outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that we are not slaves. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We also learn that we are not just in the business of serving God. We're in the business of having the sacredness of God become afforded to us in the way we live our lives. But you know, over the years, I think we've allowed grace to become an excuse. So many of us just say, well, you know, if God wants to do this, let his grace manifest itself. But I want to suggest to you that the opposite of grace is not works. We don't want works. We're not trying to earn something with God. But you can't really say that you've experienced grace if you have no effort attached to living in the fullness of that grace. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to works. So we experience everything through grace. You've been saved through grace. You are being restored through grace. You are being healed through grace. You are being set free through grace. That's God's part in this process. And his grace enables you to bring your will into alignment with his will, but also to do the work of what it means to work out our salvation 
with fear and with trembling. We cannot be effortless and expect the plan of God to come to pass. And you know, it's interesting because as Christians, I think that's sometimes how we live. You know, we have what I would call a Peter Pan theology. We say it'll just all pan out in the end. Well, there's no Tinkerbell here and no wand or sparkles or fairy dust. You and I have been called to work with the God who is working in us to accomplish that which he has offered us through grace. You can't earn it through works, but you need to come into partnership and put some effort into attaining it. So let's look a little about some of these things. Spiritual disciplines fall into three categories. The first one is an inward perspective. I think it's hard sometimes for us to allow God to look at us without the mask on. Sometimes it's hard for us to allow the penetrating gaze of a perfect God to deeply touch, reach, and speak into our innermost being. In fact, I've noticed something about myself, and perhaps it's the case for everybody. I sometimes would do anything, everything I can, but be still. I am so preoccupied with life, so caught up with stuff, so intrigued by what's happening around me. And I don't know if the reason that I'm running all the time at those things is because maybe I'm not sure that if I was on my own with God, what God would actually say. And I think sometimes we're frightened that if God was to gaze deeply within us, you know, beyond the, the rah-rah of a Sunday and your Pentecostal outbreaks, the reality of your brokenness stands very naked and apparent to God. God knows you're a liar. God knows that you've got pride in your life. Hello? God knows that you're self-serving and self-seeking. God knows that you're greedy. God knows that you're resentful, unforgiving. God knows that you're unyielding. God knows that you're willful and you want your own way in every situation. I could go on and on and on, and I can tell by going on and on just how uncomfortable we are when we take a long look at ourselves and the truth of God's word. We are broken, wretched people. But grace comes to rewrite the story of our wretchedness. Grace comes in abundance to anyone who is intentional about walking away from some of those things and walking into the fullness that Jesus Christ has on offer for us. Grace moves me from being a wretch to a worshiper. Grace rewrites the story of anybody's life if they will just walk alongside God as he brings healing and restoration. And here's a little lesson for you. Maybe you should try this. Sit on the edge of your bed tomorrow and think, what one thing today could I say to God about my internal world? Because God, if you're not on the inside, you will never show up on the outside. And I love the fact that God begins changing everything about us from the inside out. You see, the world is obsessed with muscles and beauty and power and all of those things. But my God... 
does not look upon the outward appearance. He looks upon the heart. He knows who you are. He knows your address. He knows your weaknesses and your brokenness. But he cannot keep his hands off you. He loves you. He delights in you. And he is with you. Working out through your life. The transformation that is necessary for you to live in fullness. We need God on the inside. We need God in my mind, in my heart, in my brokenness, in my pain, in my disquiet, in my disappointment. We need God in all of those things. I don't want to hide from him who did not hide his face from me, but he came in all of his power to redeem and to restore me to victory. Amen, amen, and amen. And then there's the outward disciplines, things like prayer. I know some of us think that prayer is kind of, you know, mumbling under your breath. I often think in some meetings I'm in when we say, let's pray, and everyone goes, mm. <laughs> that we've got a mistaken understanding of what prayer really is. You see, prayer is you using the very gift that God has given you, which is your tongue, to release his purposes and his power into a situation. Do you know, church, that your tongue has the power of life and death? What you curse is cursed, and what you bless is blessed. God, in his great infinite wisdom, used Adam to name the animals in the book of Genesis. God included Adam in that creation ordinance because he involved Adam in the power that was available to Adam to bring blessing. I wonder what you've done with your tongue this week. In the book of James, it says, if you can tame the tongue, you can tame the whole man. You see, what comes out of your mouth lands on your lap. And what's come out of your mouth this week needs a little attention, doesn't it? That's why prayer is our invitation to let come out of our mouths the abundance of God. When we invite you to pray for our elders, we invite you to pray for people, and I say pray your best possible prayer, what I'm saying is pray what you would love for yourself. Pray what you would love to hear somebody else pray over you. Don't be shy or hindered by self-consciousness because what comes out of your mouth not only blesses the person who's the target of it, but it creates an environment and an atmosphere around you for all that God has for you. You are prophesying your own future every time you pray. I'll wait for you to wake up. That's what you're doing. And so if I want abundance in my life, if I want freedom in my life, if I want healing in my life, I release my tongue into alignment with the purposes of God. And I trust that as I sow, I will reap. As I give, I will freely receive. So prayer isn't contemplation. We'll come to that in the inward disciplines. Prayer is making manifest through declaration what God designs and desires to see come to pass. And then, of course, there's corporate disciplines. And corporate disciplines are things like worship. You know, we can worship on our own, and sometimes I think it would be a bit easier. <laughs> Don't you find it's easier when you're on your own to worship? But the Bible teaches us that we should come together with spiritual psalms and songs, bring words of encouragement and life to one another, and so we need to be disciplined. I know over the pandemic, forgive me if this sounds controversial, but so many people have taken the opt-out of living in community with God's family. The Bible says, do not forsake meeting together 
as some of you have become accustomed to. And it goes on to say that there's a consequence to that. The consequence is that death, spiritual death perhaps, becomes your reality. We were never created by God to live in isolation. We were created by God to live in community. And that community is good for us, whether we want it, whether we like it, whether we love it or not, that community is good for us. You know, I can't tell you the amount of times I have come to church and I just felt as dead as a dodo. And I look over to my right and there is that little old lady worshiping Jesus. And I know that I know that I know that her body is trashed with arthritis, but she can't help herself but adore God. That lady impacts my life greatly. You can come in in a bad mood. Looks like your face is telling me you have today. Okay, you come in in a bad mood. Despite your greatest attempts to resist, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than, before you know where you are, through gritted teeth. <laughs> you find your heart just begin to open up before God. It's good for us to be together. I need you, perhaps you need me, but we definitely need each other. And where two or more gather in his name, he is right there in the midst of them. Amen. So we have inward, outward, and corporate disciplines. And I want to take you to this particular subject because I think for many reasons this seems to have escaped us as Christians. We don't think that meditation is perhaps an accessible thing to us because I think the propaganda of the enemy has made us believe that it's something strange or unusual or maybe cultic or maybe Eastern in its orientation. But I want to just suggest to you that the Bible has lots of things to say about meditation. And we're going to come to some practical things in a minute about how we do this. But I just want to tell you that the reason I think it's a struggle for us, I think it really is a struggle, is because the enemy has preoccupied us with noise, hurry, and crowds. I think it's true to say that the world is full of noise. I have a daughter, she's 24. I can't believe she's 24. I look so young. <laughs> Funny that were true. And you know, she has this wonderful skill. I look in awe at it. We can have the television on. She's got her laptop going in one hand. She's got her phone watching something on social media. And somehow, she can have a conversation. I can't catch my breath at such skill. It's profoundly developed. But what I recognize in that, in our world, it is full of noise. A study happened about 15 years ago where somebody wanted to record silence. Strange study to do. And they searched for a while to find the right location to do so. And they thought they found it. It was in a place called Whistler in Canada. And if you've ever been to... Um, BC in Canada, it's beautiful, it's breathtaking. You think all you could hear is the birds. And so this gentleman, looking for this recording of silence, went and camped there with all his microphones and everything else, and they were highly sensitive things. And he was excited to be able to say he had captured silence until he got back to his studio. And he, didn't, he realized this, not only was it not silent, it was incredibly noisy. Because though it looked like he was out in the middle of nowhere, airplanes and helicopters and 
all kinds of things. In the background, there were two people arguing. It was probably you, wasn't it? It was probably you. There were kids playing over here, animals squawking. Some of that he knew he would embrace, but actually he failed. The experiment failed because anywhere you go in this world, there is noise. And you know, if the noise is not external, I can guarantee you it's internal. Hurry. Why are we in such a hurry? I mean, really, will your life be completely devastated if you're not the first in the queue at the traffic lights? When we lived in London for 18 months, I was horrified one day. I was sitting in traffic. This obviously a very busy city. And you know the white line in the middle of the road? It looked like an invitation to somebody to drive his Ferrari up the middle of it. So we're all sitting in the three-lane traffic, and this man is driving his Ferrari. And can I say, not slowly. He was followed by every other idiot, I mean person, <laughs> who thought this would be the best way or mechanism for them to get where they needed to go to. And I just thought, why are we so keen to risk our lives to get somewhere in a hurry? What is it about this world where we're all in a hurry? I just come back from a, a holiday in Turkey. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you for asking. And I've noticed something about us Brits. We queue. Do you know people from the Netherlands don't queue? <laughs> and I feel incensed. I mean, there's plenty of food for everybody. You know, does this look like a body that goes hungry? But I've queued, and I resent it when somebody steps in front. Is there anybody like me? Come on, tell the truth. You're in church. I mean, you don't say it out loud, but you're really praying under your breath. God, give them food poisoning in the name of Jesus. May they get the prawn that was heading for me the slightly off, Jesus. I pray they won't be at the buffet for three days full, Jesus. And there's loads of food. I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of food there is in the buffet. But goodness me, if you step in front of me, my sanctification falls. It just falls because we're all in a hurry. For all got to be somewhere. Where is the somewhere that you need to be? Let me tell you this truth. It's a truth that we'll come to in a moment more fully. But it's this. The Bible says of us to live with this kind of intentionality. This is the day that the Lord has made. What is it saying to us? Wherever you think you're going, wherever you think you need to be, is not as important to you as where you are right now. Be highly intentional about focusing on here. Now I've noticed in church we have two polarized spiritual realities. There are those who believe that all the best has happened in the past. The best songs, the best preaching, the best outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I remember chatting with somebody recently and they said, you know, I'm not keen on the worship of today. It's a little bit self-orientated. I can't disagree. I mean, I don't know how we turned into this, but how he loves us so. <laughs> They're not wrong. They're not wrong. We're a little self-absorbed, amen? 
So I cast my mind back to when I first got saved, 1984, and I was thinking back to the songs. And this person was saying, you know, there was depth, there was stature, it was robust theologically. And I was thinking of this song. Let the flag fly high on the castle of my heart. The castle of my heart. The castle of my heart. Let the flag fly. It's deeply theological, isn't it? Robust, powerful theological realities. So those people think all the good things happened over here. And the problem with that is you're not living here. This is the day the Lord has made. We have to turn ourselves on and switch ourselves into the present. God is here. He's doing great things. He wants to speak to you. He wants to minister to you. He wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. Why would you be living there? And then there's the other group of people. It's all going to be fantastic in the end. You know, God's going to do great things in the end. When revival comes, pastor, it'll all be wonderful. And I call that Peter Pan theology. You think it's all going to happen in the future? Do you know if revival was to come, you'd be deeply challenged by it. You won't live in some euphoric bubble. You'll be praying and interceding and serving beyond the capacity you have right now. And if you think it's hard now, I tell you, revival requires of us to make as much room and as much space in our hearts and lives for God. And it might challenge our Sunday dinner. It might challenge our social life. It might challenge some of the things that we take for granted in this hour. So there's no point in living there. And you're not quite there yet. So what do we do? We live here with our eyes wide open and our hearts laid bare before God. And we say, this is the day that the Lord has made. May his grace and his mercy afforded to me in this day cause me to live in perfect union with him. I think the enemy loves to keep us busy. He loves to fill our lives with noise. And he loves to surround us with hundreds and hundreds of people. Life, the life we want, cannot be found in all of that activity. We must come away from it. We must separate ourselves Excuse me, from some of those realities. We must learn how to be still, how to shut out all of the troubling and difficult things that life has to offer us. And if we want to live something of a spiritual journey that's more than just superficial or occasional, we need to deepen our connection with God, ourselves and other people. And for that to happen, we need to practice what meditation really looks like. There are two Hebrew words for meditation. I won't embarrass myself trying to pronounce them, but write them down, go home and study them. And they're written in the scriptures for all kinds of reasons, but primarily for us this morning to draw us deeper into some of the realities that we are escaping or not seeing that are available to us in God. One of them basically means self-seclusion. You know, one of the things that I think would do all of us really well is to have solitude. Solitude is really good for the soul. Solitude causes you to be able to connect with the reality of God. Solitude invites you into a place of communion. It facilitates the desire of the Father to speak life over you. Second 
part of this is contemplation. What does contemplation mean? It means to think. It means to ponder. It means to look at and to consider and to examine and to embrace and to allow to absorb into our souls the reality of who God is. These words are used interchangeably in all kinds of parts of the Old Testament, but basically it's this for us in our current contemporary setting. We're listening to God's word. You know when you pick up the Bible, are you listening to God's word or are you reading God's word? You know, when I first became a Christian, Sunday school looked very different perhaps than it does right now because Sunday school was basically this. You would come along to Sunday school and last week you would have been given a Bible verse. And whoever could recite the Bible verse would get the sweets. As you can see, I was really good at that. <laughs> Nowadays, we don't learn off by heart the Word of God. It's a very instant society. We read the Bible app or we read a portion of Scripture. If you do every day with Jesus, that's great. But there's very little memorization of the Scriptures. Very little of it takes place. And here's the problem with that. You can know the truth. You can know where it is in the Bible. You can have it, you know, as something that you read on a consistent basis. But you're not meant to just know the truth. And the word know in the scriptures is far more than just have a head knowledge. It's to actually know God in his character and his nature. You shall know the truth. And that truth has the power to set you free. So we cannot come to the word of God casually. We must come with hearts that long to see him with a mind that longs to engage in conversation, to fathom the depths of his greatness, to understand the vastness of his love. We're not airheads in the kingdom of God. We've been given a brain to be able to understand who he is. So we need to listen and, and engage and, and marinate in and learn, wrote and off by heart, and examine and get into conversation with God regarding his word. I, when I was at Bible college, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me all those thousands of years ago, I want you to learn off by heart the scripture. And, and the first one that I felt I wanted to learn was this. And it says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. For he is like a tree planted by a stream of life who bears fruit in season and out of season. Not so the wicked, they be like chaff. And I can still recite the whole um, psalm today um, because I took the time. But here's what I did with it. I used to say, God, what does it mean to be blessed? Because, you know, there are words that we use, but I don't really know what they mean. Do you? To be blessed is simply this, the shalom and the fullness and the countenance and the greatness and the abundance of God has permeated every part of your being. Amen? Amen? This is not some high five in the heavenly realms. This is the reality of the presence, the power, and the person of God made manifest in your broken, difficult, chaotic life. We want to be blessed. Who wants to be blessed? What does it mean to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Well, you know, God began to speak to me that sometimes we take our advice from Oprah. You know, we've got all kinds of people that we admire and we listen to them. 
But if they are not walking with God, if they are not living the word of God, if they are not declaring the truth of God, it's just secular humanism at its best. And it's not that you have to do something wicked. It's a wicked thing not to trust the living word of God. Do you hear me, church? And God doesn't give advice. So he won't be just one of the many voices in your life. I think we do this with God. We cherry pick the bits we like. I mean, we don't mind the blessings, but we don't want to give anything. Oprah is not God. Just a woman. But his word will not return to him void, but will accomplish what he set it out to do. His word is a lamp unto our feet. If there is anyone who knows everything about everything and is simply the brightest and most brilliant one in any conversation you have, it's God Almighty. And I would do what he asks you to do because he knows a thing or two. He's been around a little while. He's seen stars come and go and he's watched the error and the folly of man who think they know how this works. Jesus said these words, it kind of moves us away from my truth, your truth, some truth. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So we rehearse in our minds the goodness of God. We contemplate his works. God has been working in you, hasn't he? Hello. We reminate on his law. We allow it to fill our souls with truth. And you know why we do that? Because the next time something bumps into you, what comes out of you is good. When I was in Bristol, I remember we had a problem with the back door. Do you remember that blessed thing, Jackie? And the alarm used to go off and we couldn't get in and out of the building and it, was, it had one of these keypad things that lock it. And we waited days for the engineer to come out. And of course, I can't even remember who was dealing with him. It was probably you, Marissa. But as I walked past somewhere, I heard, well, I saw something that I was not happy about. And it's a characteristic. I think when you learn a trade, at the end of it, they teach you this act. You invite a plumber to your house, they go. And that little shake of the head to somebody who's frustrated about a problem is like red rag to a bull or petrol on a fire. And I thought, Jesus, help me, because someone is about to lose their life and it isn't me. <laughs> and before I knew where I was, I was contending with this man for the bell to be fixed. And I looked at whoever was standing around me, and they were shocked. Shocked because, you know, some people have this illusion that I walk on casters. What was in me came out of me. And it wasn't pretty. To be future-proof, to ensure that we reflect Jesus correctly and profoundly, we must do the work of inventory. We must allow him to heal and restore our souls. And the next time someone cuts you up at the traffic lights, what comes out of your mouth could be hallelujah. <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway, I wasn't in a hurry. 
I know where I'm going and it's not there, it's there. Thank you, Jesus. Or when someone backstabs you, you don't feel the need to retaliate. You know, Jesus never retaliated anybody to everybody and they spat on him. Some people wanted to murder him. I don't know how difficult a week you've had, but I hazard a guess no one's been out to kill you. When he was before his accusers, he stayed silent. Why? Because his internal world was perfectly in unity with the reality of his father and his kingdom. And it didn't matter what bumped into him because all that came out of him. Look at it on the cross. Look at it on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, unless our internal reality is living in the abundance and the fullness of God, our external conditions will begin to shape and form our decisions and our actions. And every time we find ourselves in this place, we realize that we need more work on the inside so that God can do some great things on the outside. Let me take you to some scriptures. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. I hold my feet from every evil in order to keep thy word. I do not turn aside from thy ordinances, for thou hast taught me. The inside demonstrated on the outside. For us as Christians, obedience and faithfulness distinguish Christian meditation from its Eastern or secular forms. When we behold God, we desire to become like him. When we encounter him in all his goodness, we start to recognize our need and our desperation for him to empower us in our weakness. Look at this one. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. Genesis 24, verse 63. Psalm 63, verse 6. I think of thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the watches of the night. In other words, through my sleeping, my rising, my going, and my coming, Lord, my mind is preoccupied with you. I love this next one. Psalm 119, verses 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate upon your promises. Church, can I just say to you, if you spent less time focusing on your problems and more time focusing on your promises, you will find that you'd have a greater sense of the power and the presence of God in your life. And the psalm that introduces us to the psalms, which is Psalm 1 verse 2, it says this. It calls us to be blessed and it says, A blessed man is he who delights in the law of the law and upon his law he meditates day and night. I could keep going with these. The prophet Eli knew how to listen to God and help the young boy Samuel to know the word of God. 1 Samuel 3, 1 to 18. Elijah spent many days and nights in the wilderness listening to discern the still small voice of Yahweh. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and heard his voice saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Jeremiah discovered the word of God to be a burning fire shut up in his bones. Imagine living with that kind of power encounter of God present and current in your life. These were just ordinary people like you and me, but they did something extraordinary with their time. They were intentional about meditating on the law of the Lord. They marinated their souls in truth. 
They saturated their lives with God's word. And they found themselves caught up in the great story of God as he began to use them in effective ways. Every single one of them had the same trials and tribulations and distractions that you have. Oh, I know social media wasn't around, but for the Jew, they lived in community and generations lived together. You can imagine trying to be with God in the midst of that kind of chaos. But if that isn't evidence enough for us, that meditation is good for us, we need to fill our minds and hearts with the goodness of God. Go to Matthew 14, verse 13 for me. Jesus is the best example of how we can live in this kind of way. In Matthew 14, verse 13, it says this, that he withdrew to a lonely place. In other words, he separated himself from all of the chaos and the people and the noise, and he lived in a consistent union with God. I want to say this to you because time is short and there's some other things I need to remind you of, is that we all want the life Jesus offers, but very few people are willing to live the life that Jesus lives. And if you look at the rhythm of Jesus' life, he had these great external, powerful realities of the kingdom of God, but you know the power did not come when he got to the public place. The power came because it was formed through relationship and communion with the Father in the private place. If our private world is impoverished and our public world is incredibly busy, we will be powerless to do anything that affects the world for good. We must make the private world a greater priority than the public world. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to the disciples who come with this question, we've watched you, we've seen you, Jesus, and you are remarkable. We don't get it. We don't understand how you do this, but you seem unaffected by the world around you. What is this that you live, Jesus? Who is this that you connect with? And he highlights something to them. He says, you know, and we've turned that whole thing into teach us how to pray, but it was so much more than teach us how to pray. It was teach us how to be like you, Jesus. And he says this, go into your room. Shut the door. And meet with your father. And what your father sees in private, listen to this church, he will bless you with in public. I've been in ministry 30, no, 30 years maybe around that. And the amount of times when ministers, people in this role have not understood that principle. I, if I had a pound for every time I've seen it fashioned and, and visible, I would be a wealthy man today. But you cannot stand in a pulpit and preach power when you are not living in a private place with God. And your life is not surrendered to him in submission and obedience in your private life. It is important to understand that everything that happens in private, God will bless in public. But you can't go to the public and not do the private and expect there to be power. So I'm going to take you to this. For the Christian, meditation is about hearing, but it's also about obeying. And the difference between Eastern meditation and Christian meditation is this. In Eastern meditation, people are taught to empty their mind. For some of us, that's a quicker job than for others. But also that particular model of meditation means that you are now open and available to all kinds of spiritual forces or influences that can then flood and fill your mind. 
So Christian meditation is not about emptying your mind. In fact, it's the opposite. It's about filling your mind, flooding your mind with light, saturating your brain with truth, marinating your soul in goodness. It's the opposite. And why is that important? Because so as a man or a woman thinks, they live. So how do we do this? Glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you. The first thing we find is that Habakkuk gives us some great practices that will help us to engage with the whole art of meditation. And at first it will be clumsy and clunky, and it won't feel very natural to you. But the more you do this, the more ease it'll have, and the more accessibility God will have to you, and you will be able to live more and more consistently and continuously in the goodness of God. The prophet Haggai says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and whatever answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Is there anybody here who'd like to practice Christian meditation? The rest of you are not bothered or you're not going to do it? <laughs> I'll try that question again because I was hoping for a greater response. Is there anybody here who would like to practice Christian meditation? If it's good enough for... King David, it must be good enough for us. If it was good enough for Jesus, it must be good enough for us. Well, the first thing to say is you need to find, carve out, establish for yourself a rhythm where you are still. Habakkuk identifies a place that he goes to. For him, it's the rampart. And the rampart would have been one of the towers on a series of breaks in the wall around the city. And he would go up to, notice the terminology, to this high place. Now these ramparts were placed around the city walls for warfare. They were the places where the armory was dispensed to stop the enemy from taking control of the city. And God wants us to find a rampart in our lives. A place, a space where we just go to be with him. For me, when we were in Bristol, that place was my shed. You know, I remember at the time that book, The Shack, came out. <laughs> and I didn't have a shack, but I did have a shed. And I thought, you know, I'll just go and spend some time with Jesus. And I got into the rhythm of just being on my own with God. At first, I didn't know what to do. And you know what we do in these moments? It's a still, quiet place, but we fill it with the sound of our own voices. Have you ever noticed that about you? When you're left in a place of silence, you want to fill it with the sound of your own voice. Here's what God said to me in those days. I know everything about you, and you hardly know anything about me. So who do you think should be talking the most? And we come with our shopping lists and our problems and our difficulties, and we offer that God doesn't know, like he doesn't see. He hasn't already noticed that you're struggling in those ways. I found it so hard not to talk. Well, you know what I'm like, I can go on forever. I didn't kiss the blarney stole, I swallowed it. <laughs> In fact, it's coming up as we speak. We fill the space with noise and we drowned out the still small voice of Almighty God. Another thing we do is fill it with activity. I will worship. 
with all of my heart. It's almost like we don't trust that if we're not doing something to make God interested, he'll come. Remember noise? Noises of the world. Peace is of the kingdom. I want to sit and bask in his goodness. And so what I would do is, after a while, I stopped talking, I stopped singing, I stopped trying to pray, and I just said, God, I'm here. I'm just here with you. Do you know what it's like whenever you've been married to somebody a long time? You don't have to communicate because you know each other so well, you just sit in each other's company. And it's enough, and it satisfies, and it's good. I'm growing to the place where that's my reality with God. I don't have to say things. I have to make something happen. I just have to be here and be present and be engaged and be open and be curious. So find yourself a space or a place to be with God. Take a discipline and apply it to your life. I guarantee you this. Let me tell you, I don't guarantee many things apart from taxes and death. But if you practice silence and solitude in the presence of God for just one hour each morning this week or whatever time you choose to do it, I guarantee you by the end of the week that's ahead, you will have a greater knowledge and a greater sense and a greater experience of God. It seems to me like it's a win-win. Then he uses this other phrase, which is talk, I look to see what he will say to me. It's uh, unimaginable to think that God wouldn't have something to say. <laughs> and yet sometimes we have no expectation that he'll speak. But you know, when you come into the presence of God, remember I said earlier about him being intentional? He has so much to tell you. He has so much wisdom to give you. He has so much revelation crafted, prepared, and made ready for you. God has hidden wonderful things for you in plain sight. The trouble is, we make it so complicated. When we come into the presence of God, it's unlikely for some of us that we even come with that sense of expectation but as we come to God, we must look. And what we do with the looking part is we look at his word. And we look and reflect on his goodness. And we ponder the great things he's done for us. I don't know if you've worked it out yet. I certainly haven't. How on earth did I get saved? What a miracle that is. What am I that God will be mindful of me? When I look back across my life and I see all the great ways he has been faithful to me, that would keep me engaged with him for all eternity, if I pondered and considered such things. And when I come to his word, I come and I say, God, and this is how I read the Bible. I don't want to fill my head with knowledge. I want to fill my heart with you, Jesus. I come, Lord Jesus, and I want you to minister to me. I need you to minister to me. Lord, you have bread, and I'm hungry. You are refreshing in the fountain of all that is good, and I am thirsty and weary. God, I come to you, I look to you, and I lean into his presence, and I look to see what he's saying and what he's doing, and sometimes he gives me a picture, sometimes he gives me a poem. Do you know whenever the spirit really moves in my life, I speak in a way that's poetic. Loads of people have commented on it in the past. It just, I have not practiced it recently, but that all happens in his presence. 
God does something in the private that he uses in the public. The third thing we need to do is to recognize his voice. Now, the unique thing about God in relationship to us is he speaks our language. I remember my first encounter with that was many, many years ago when a young lady called Whitney Houston was the megastar that she was while she was alive. And um, I remember sitting in my car and just praying and asking God to do something. And the worship came on, which was Whitney to me. He picks me up. What's the next line? More love than I'll ever need. He's all I've got. He's all the man I need. Now, that may seem odd to you, and you might think, oh, that's not very holy, is it? You know, but God was speaking to me, ministering to me deeply in my soul. And God, to this day, sometimes through, I mean, here's another one that I find has a, a holiness attached to it. It's by a young lady. You may have heard of her. She's not that well-known, called Beyonce. <laughs> a rising star who has risen to extremes. And here's the one of recent months that I feel connected to. And um, listen to the song here in my heart, a melody. Don't ruin it for me. Don't sing it. <laughs> listen, this is the voice. Time has come for my voice to be heard. All if you won't, all if you don't, listen. You see, that means nothing to you. But what happened to me three years ago has rendered me speechless. And so when God speaks, he will use anything, everything, even a donkey. Yes. -ho! Yes. A donkey. God used a donkey to change a nation. Hallelujah. The problem isn't, is God speaking? The problem is, am I listening? Is my heart attuned? Is it acclimatized? Is it open to what God wants to do? And then the final thing Habakkuk tells us to do in our adventure of meditation is to write it down. I went to Bible college from this church 3,000 years ago. And at that time in my life, my mom was highly dependent on me. My dad had been ill for a number of years, and she used to go out singing in the Irish clubs and pubs, and I drove the van, and I put the PA up, and I kind of did all of those things. And God was calling me to Bible college. He was calling me to, to come away from all of that. I had just started a relationship with Jane. I knew instantly the minute I kissed her that she was smitten with me. the other way around. God told me the first time I ever kissed Jane that I would marry her. All right. Don't get too excited about it. It was good for me. It is good for me. And I had all of these things, these concerns, and I, I wrote them down. I thought, I don't know how to pray about this, God. What's going to happen? And, you know, not that I am the savior of everything, but I certainly was involved in a lot of things. I love this church. The night that they all prayed for me as I went off to Bible college, I wept and wept and wept because I had grown fond and connected to all kinds of people and I didn't know what that would look like. Where would we go? I was going to an academic environment. 
You know, I left school with a few GSEs and a couple of O-levels. I wasn't really expecting to do well at Bible college. I knew it would be difficult. And you know, Bible college is full of people who are up themselves in the Greek. It's full of pretentious people sometimes who think they're better than they are and there's no normality to it. I remember sitting in the common room and the first night I was there, it's 10.30 at night and I go out to get chips and I come back and there's nobody there and I think the rapture has taken place. (laughs) What I didn't know is Christians go to bed at 10.30. If you're not in bed at 10.30, you won't go to glory. (laughs) That's where some of you are going wrong. Wrote it all down. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, show me. Lord Jesus, do this for me, Lord. I put it inside of my Bible. Of course, you go to Bible college, you get all these books, and every time term finished, we had to pack everything up in our rooms because they were so tight. I mean, so in need of the money, they would rent the rooms out to other people. And at the end of my time in Bible college, having packed that room up probably 15 times over the three years, two, two and a bit years, what I... I'm sitting on the floor, I've got the box ready to go, my last box, we're going, Jane and I, the following day to Birkenhead to be uh, the youth pastor, and we weren't married just then, we were going up uh, to to live there in obviously different places, just in case your head goes in the wrong direction. Okay, and, and we were getting ready to be married, and my whole life was moving towards this, and I sat on the floor, and this envelope fell out of the Bible. And I thought, what's that? That's my writing. I completely forgotten that I had written down anything to do with this adventure that was petrifying to me. And as I opened it, it was sealed. As I opened it and read it, I wept and I wept and I wept. Do you know, everything I wrote down on that piece of paper, God did for me and he did more than for me. He did more than for me. You see, we write things down not because God forgets, but we forget how faithful he is. When you move past things, God keeps keeping on with the thing that you asked him to do. My attempt this morning, this afternoon, and hopefully not this evening, is to help you understand how important it is to meditate on the word of God. To do not let it depart from you. Let it saturate your soul with truth. Why? Because the world we're living in is about to get terribly chaotic and I would hate for you to bump into a few things and what truly was in you came out I would like to think in all the adversity that lies ahead for the church that whenever the enemy comes in like a flood what we say is oh Lord lift up a standard lift up a standard when I'm confronted with problems they don't move me because I am obsessed with promises I'm so full of the promises of God. When I find myself troubled by the news, I want myself to be heartened by the word because I get this. Here's what happens. In the end, he wins. He wins. Jesus is our victory and our salvation. Stand with me, please. Oh, Jesus, you hold the stars in the skies, knows every planet and galaxy by name. You have called us, and you are redeeming us, and you invite us into this great adventure. 
I thank you, Jesus, that the way to you is narrow. There is a narrow gate. We had to come to that place of acceptance and repentance. But I thank you more, Jesus, that even though you are the way and you led us to that place and position, you are also the life. And while the gate is narrow, the kingdom is huge. It's unfathomable to us to know how vast and wide and deep and strong your love is for us. And yet, Lord God, so often we're unintentional or accidental or incidental. But Lord, I want to set my heart towards you and ask you, God, help me be diligent in such matters. Let my eyes behold your glory. Let my heart come under the auspices of your power. Let my soul be marinated in your kindness, Jesus, in your goodness, Jesus. For what else is there? Only you have the words of eternal life. Only you have the love we're searching for. Only you have the power we need, and we feel so powerless so much of the time. But Lord, I pray that we will come to this place of submission and surrender and shut out all the noise just to be with you, just because we love you. Not because we want something, but because we love being with you, Jesus. Lord, fill our minds with all the great things the word has to teach us. Fill our hearts with gladness and joy, hope. Lord, fill our lives with the manifestation of your power and your goodness, Lord. We ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week. It's warm. Are you warm? It's warm.